thank you. I'm glad that you decided to take part in our worship. Particularly, I want to thank you again, those of you who are, on, who are online. Who knows what else you could be doing and where else you could be besides uh, in front of a screen uh, participating with us. So thank you. We appreciate it. There's so many things that I could, that we could say about this in, in line with this, <clears throat> the, the, the statement. I've seen everybody you see, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. If you've been on social media, or Facebook, or LinkedIn, or Instagram, or I don't know about Instagram and TikTok because I have to limit myself. Even on, I have lim limits on TikTok and Face, I'm not on Facebook and LinkedIn are the only two I'm on. And I have my phone set so that I can only get on them certain hours of the day because otherwise, I have no self-control. I'll just be. What do you? I've been doing this for three hours. How can that even possibly be true, right? So I, I have, I have an app on my phone that says, I, you know, while I'm eating lunch, so I know I'm not going to be doing this because I'm hungry. <laughs> I'll stop and eat, um, you know, a little bit in the evening. Otherwise, phone says. Go do something productive. You can't get on here. Uh, so I don't have TikTok or Instagram, but I'm going to assume that they're very similar to Facebook and LinkedIn. You've probably seen something on there that says, everyone you meet, something like that. Well, there are some things that are true. Every person you meet is simultaneously deeply loved by Jesus and deeply injured by this broken world. There's part of us that has a hard time believing that's true. Part of us thinks that can't be true. But it is. It is simultaneously true that everybody you meet is deeply loved by Jesus and deeply injured by this broken world. It's true for you when you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, whether you admit it or not, you are deeply loved by Jesus. And you're deeply injured. Don't argue with me. I know I'm right. And you can live in denial if you want to. <laughs> you can send me emails or talk to me afterwards. It's okay. I am not going to put my phone number, however. I am not going to put my phone number online. Uh, but you can send me messages or emails. Um, it, it's true for 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 me, uh, even though I'm being a little cantankerous and and uh, pokey and prodding and uh, pushy this morning with that idea that you know. Uh, but I'm I'm believe it or not deeply loved by Jesus, uh, and I'm also deeply injured which may be one of the reasons I get a little bit of enjoyment out of poking other people that are living in denial. It's true for everybody that you're going to spend any time with in the next 24 hours or seven days. In the next, next seven days or the next 24 hours, whoever you're going to be with, every single person 
they're going to be there will be deeply loud, but they're also deeply injured. Now, those injuries and the pain can be more obvious in some folks' lives than it is in others. I read this story yesterday, uh, and well, I just thought, someone, the moment I read it, I went, okay, well, I'm going to follow one of my preaching mentors' advice. If you find a really good story, use it Sunday. So I'm using it. Uh, in the year tw uh, 2017, so not too long ago, Kevin Pennebaker's wife, Sherry, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And he writes, sadly, that type of cancer is a death sentence. Um, for a more, little more than five years, she battled on until, he says, the Lord called her home this past October. I miss her, he says. He says, goes on to say, my, life, my wife loved to write. She had a unique way of telling stories and letting others in on what she was thinking and feeling. So she wrote a book called, and called it Pink Cupcakes and Rainbows, a collection of short stories from the fight against the monster we call cancer. And he says, back to 2017. And he says, now I'm going to let my wife take it from here as she recounts in the chapter 8 of her book some of what she experienced. So this is from his wife's book. These are her words. The worst thing I had to endure was an MRI-guided biopsy that went all wrong. I was face down with my arms strapped behind me, my legs strapped together. I already, I've already heard a couple people gasp just with the MRI because you hate the little tunnel machine thing. Uh, and then the idea of being strapped. Uh, yeah. I had to put my face down in a mold and then they put me in the MRI machine over and over as they tried to get some of my flesh to do the biopsy. My tears dropped out of the mold and down onto the floor. It took over three hours. <clears throat> Finally, they pulled me out of the tunnel for the last time, and as I sat up, I could see drops of my own blood on the floor. I was pretty sure I was not made for such things, and maybe I just needed to tap out. She says, I couldn't even talk about it for a few days. I would just tell Kevin it was horrid, and I was too broken and sad to even tell him what happened. Finally, one day I was able to tell my mom, and she cried with She went on to say, I, one night I gave in and said this word to Kevin. Why? What had I ever done to deserve this? 
I told him I'd always tried to obey those authority over me, always tried to do what God asked us to do in obedience to him. I was a faithful wife and mother. I looked around at others who weren't even trying to half as hard and their lives were great. This is the quote Mr. Honey says. This is the quote Mr. Honey read to me that night from J.D. Walt. Trouble is the unfortunate feature and bitter fruit of this insanely complex, compounded brokenness, of the insanely complex, compounded brokenness of a fallen creation. It is neither an indictment on the goodness of God nor the faith of his followers. That is a very complicated sentence, so I'm going to read it again and try to get it right. <sighs> Trouble is the unfortunate feature and bitter fruit of the insanely complex, compounded brokenness of a fallen creation. It is neither an indictment on the goodness of God nor the faith of his followers. She concludes, in other words, bad things do happen to good people. In this world, we were promised that we would have trouble. We were also promised that God would take care of us. <clears throat> when Jesus was in this world, he connected with hurting people all the time. And one of the most curious uh, encounters was with a paralyzed man at a pool on the edge of Jerusalem. The story is found in John chapter 5. I, I, I'm just going to quickly reach out the story. You don't have to look it up, but if you want to check me out later, uh, or if you're following along in the event, it's there. Uh, John chapter 5, it tells us Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, there's uh, by the sheep gate going into the city of Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic. It has five covered walkways, and a great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. It was a place where sick people gathered. Now a man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. He'd been paralyzed and there for 38 years. That's more than half of my lifetime. Some people think I'm old. Not everybody, but some. When Jesus saw him lying there and he realized that the man had been disabled a long time already, he said to him, he asked him this question. Get this question, because this is where it gets really interesting and curious for me. Jesus looked at this man and said, do you want to be well? Do you want to become well? So let us sink in. Do you want to become well? The sick man answered him. 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. So apparently at this place, in this pool, there was this legend that when the water was stirred up, it was stirred by an angel, and the first person in would be healed. It was a race. That's why all the sick people were there. Sick people, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. So you imagine in a race, paralyzed people would be, and lame people would be, well, blind people. But you would think a guy with 38 years of seniority ought to be like right next to the pool. But apparently that they didn't have seniority rules at the pool. Um, so Jesus says to him, do you want to become well? And the first words out of his mouth are excuses for why he's not becoming well. Not yes, not no, not maybe, but excuses. There's a period at the end, if you're looking at it, there's it, a period at the end of his answers in verse 7, and then in verse 8, Jesus says something. We have no idea what kind of, how long time, what kind of, what amount of time elapses between the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 when Jesus says something. That's the way it is with written stories. Unless the author gives us an indication. He does in verse 8 and 9. Because Jesus says something in verse 8. And verse 9 says immediately. So we know there's no, there's no, there's no time. So we don't know if Jesus just stood there and looked at him and waited we, we don't know if, if the man and if Jesus stood and waited and just Kind of tilted his head. Did you hear the question? I, I you know, the, the question, you know, it's like Jesus may have, you know, looked at him like the, the question was, do you have somebody to help you? And the question is, do you want to become well? I don't know if Jesus saw a flicker of hope in the man's eyes or if the man stopped and, and looked at Jesus and, and started nodding his head. Oh, yeah, I, I do. But I didn't know that in verse 8, the very first thing Jesus does, the, if somehow in response to this man, he says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately, it says, the man was healed. <clears throat> and he got up after 38 years of laying there. Hmm? No rehab. No rehab. He didn't say, Jesus didn't say, go find a physical therapy place. 
pick up your mat and go find a physical therapist. You know, go call your family to come and pick you up. Nope. Pick up your mat and go home. By the way, this is just another prime example of Jesus breaking rules. It was a Sabbath day, so he was telling this guy to break the rules. You're not supposed to carry your bed around. You're not supposed to move your bed, your mat, whatever, on the Sabbath. He got in trouble for doing that. Uh, but here, here's my question. One of the things I wonder about this is the, the man's first response was excuses. It's like he's, he says, you know, the problem's out here. The problem is I don't have any help. Everybody else is faster than me. So I can't get well. It makes me wonder if he'd been making excuses for 38 years. Was he stuck in a mindset that says, I'm always going to be like this? Whatever was going on, we really don't know, but we do know that something happened. Jesus said to him, stand up, and immediately he could, and he did, and he went home. Now, I'm willing to be corrected on this, but as far as I know, all the world's religions begin with the concept of separation. Whether separation from God the Creator or from a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses or from some blissful state of enlightenment or spiritual uh, state of peace, all, all religions say that there's this gap between where we are and where we want to be or ought to be, and we want to find a bridge. And the answer to that question is amazingly consistent uh, in all religions except Christianity. It, each religion claims that the compliance to its list of rules, whatever that list may be, is what will take to bridge the breach. And disobedience to those rules only widens the gap. If you don't follow the eightfold path, or you don't follow the the, the, the path, the, the steps of Islam, or if you don't get into the covenant, if you don't do these things, if you don't make the right sacrifices, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't, you're not gonna, you know, you're just doomed. <coughs> The most hopeful ones are the ones that tell, tell you you're, you're doomed to just do the cycle over again. And again. And again. And again. Until maybe by some slim chance you might possibly get it right. Those are the most hopeful ones. 
in contrast to all the other religions, the message of the gospel, the message of the good news declares that God bridged the gap for us through Jesus. And our response is simply to trust him. Trust establishes and maintains our relationship with him. Our lives are then shaped by our love and our trust in him and in, in Jesus. And so the key question for, for those of us who want to follow Jesus and those of us who want to be uh, Christians is do we trust him? Do we believe him? Some of you are going, okay, well, that was interesting. Why did you bring that up? You got this guy, this woman who was sick, and then this guy who was paralyzed, and now you got world religions going on. Well, we're in the book of Hebrews. Now, that was the introduction. We're now to the book of Hebrews. That's the text for this morning, not the whole book. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 6, 3 is where we're going to be. That's the, uh, that's the Bible passage we're going to, to, to study and look at this morning. I'm going to tell you about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written uh, to first century Jewish believers in Jesus who were tempted to turn back to their former beliefs and practices. They were facing persecution. Things were difficult for them. In the Roman Empire, Jewish people had it Compared to others, relatively easy. Everyone else could be drafted into the Roman army. They gave up drafting Jewish people. Jewish soldiers would refuse to, to fight on the Sabbath. They would say, well, we're going to kill you. Then they'd say, kill me. Well, we're not going to fight. So they killed one. Rest of us, they were. We're still not going to fight. They kill another one. They kill another. That's why they gave up. Which is, it, there's no need to draft these people. We'll just have to kill all of them. And for some reason, even the Romans didn't want to wipe them all out. Just let them have their Sabbath. It's a weird religion, but they're so committed to it. Let them have it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't burn incense to Caesar, but, well, I don't know why, but they'd rather die than do it, so just let him go. But the strange thing happened when they became followers of Jesus. At first, the Romans thought all the followers of Jesus were just a branch of Judaism. And so they were treated, at first, with the same kind of respect and tolerance. Until the Jewish leaders started going, no, 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 no. They're heretics. They're not part of us. Besides, most of them aren't even Jewish. And then the Roman Empire said, oh, the Christians are fair game. We can draft them, and we can kill them, because they got no excuses. They're not Jewish. 
Well, they, they, they tried to say they were Jewish. It didn't matter. No, you're not, because the rabbi just told us you're not Jewish. He kicked you out. So these people are starting to think, huh, this following Jesus is pretty expensive. It hurts. Maybe we should go back. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. Nobody knows who it, who, who it is. They, they, the author does not name, give their name. Um, it reads more like a sermon than a letter. Um, and the theme of the book is the superior, superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better than everything. So if you're giving up Jesus, you're giving up God's best. The challenge is believers, then and now, Jewish and non-Jewish, to follow Jesus faithfully. That's the whole book. And here we are in chapter 5, verses 11 verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. We're looking at a section here where the, the author is challenging them. To not give up and to keep moving in their relationship. The author's been talking to them about what Jesus has done for them as a high priest and as a sacrifice. And he says to them, or she, by the way, could have been a woman, we don't know. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. These Jesus followers were stuck. They were living and holding on to a self-made, self-imposed, arrested development. They stopped growing. It kind of reminded me of, of the guy at the pool for 38 years. That's all we know. Now, these people haven't been in this situation for 38 years. But here's the, the symptoms of... Their, their arrested development, 
they no longer tried to understand. It was just too hard. It, you know, the new things, trying to understand this thing that Jesus has done for us and what it means for us, and you know, it's just too hard. You know, we, all, we understood everything we learned back there at Sabbath day school. I had that all figured out. This new stuff, it's hard. So they stopped trying to understand. They weren't acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked. I did a whole lot of looking and looking, and I finally figured it out. It took a while. It basically boils down to this. After reading a whole lot of other, uh, people's comments and studies and, and stuff, it boils down to this. They, they were not trying to find ways to put the great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors, yourself. They were not trying to find ways to put that into practice. That's righteousness. That's the kind of righteous life God calls us as followers of Jesus to live. Loving God with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves, that's righteousness. And they weren't trying. They weren't even acquainted with it. I mean, they knew those laws. Those came straight out of the Torah. As part of their heritage as Jewish people. But as followers of Jesus, they weren't trying to find ways to put them into practice. Because he had said all kinds of hard stuff, like love your enemies. You know, love the rabbi that kicked you out of the synagogue and told the Romans you were fair game. Love your father who just kicked you out of the house because you started following Jesus. Love your neighbor who just decided to steal your stuff and said, well, you're a Christian, it doesn't matter. Love the Roman soldier that just arrested your kids and put them in the Colosseum to feed to the animals. Number three, they were not training themselves to distinguish good and evil, good from evil. They, you know, the first the first glance we start. I, oh well, everybody can tell good from evil. Not in this broken, fallen, complex, messed up world. This world is a mess. There's a lot of stuff that looks good at first glance and people go, oh, I really like that. But if you keep looking, it's not. It's not, a, you know, you may think, well, you know, you're, the author of Proverbs, 
or the collector of the Proverbs has one of the Proverbs. The ancient Proverbs says there's a way that looks right to people, but the end of it is death. We have to constantly be training ourselves to see the path that looks like it's headed in the right direction, but it's actually going to take us off a cliff. When we lived in Kentucky, my wife and I almost drove, drove into the Kentucky River. We were on a state highway. Did not know that in Kentucky, at least at that time, there were places where you could needed to take a ferry across the river. They didn't have a bridge. Didn't say anything about a bridge or a ferry on the map. By the way, it's before GPS, before Google Maps. Okay, this was a long time ago for everybody. Yeah, 40 some years ago. At night, come around a curve. Oh man, that looks like water. We stopped. Good thing we stopped. We were just feet away from driving right into the Kentucky River. No sign, no warning. It looked like the right way to go, but it would have ended in death. Because I swim about as well as my car. Now my wife, she'd be okay. She would have gotten out. But me, I swim like a rock. We've got to learn. We've constantly be training ourselves. My mentor and coach, Keith Webb, says it this way. Being different, growing, means examining our, your assumptions, your mindsets, your motivations. You've got to get real and brutally honest. You've got to stop making do and putting up with things. None of this is easy, though. Change is rarely easy. To learn to discern the difference between what we've been thinking is good and what is really not good is not easy, but it's the path to growth. So what's behind a Jesus follower choosing not to change, grow, and progress to maturity? Why would, why would we do that? Why would we voluntarily choose arrested development and be stuck. Well, one of the reasons, it's not a, the only reason, but one of the reasons is that the onslaughts of darkness, evil, suffering, and everyday difficulties come at us and appear in our lives not to force us to stop believing in God, although that can happen. The, the goal is to push us to stop believing God, to stop trusting J.D. Well puts it this way, it's an easy thing to believe in God. I believe God exists. Most people in the United States believe in a supreme being. It's another thing entirely to believe God, to trust him. 
There are many people who believe in God, yet whose hearts have turned away from him. James, author of another book in the Bible, in the New Testament, who was Jesus' brother, goes so far as to say, you believe in God? Great, so did the demons in hell. Believing in God doesn't prove anything. We need to believe Him and trust Him. We need to follow Him. All humans, all of us have experienced pain and all of us seek to protect our inner being, whatever we call that, our hearts, our souls, our spirits, whatever else we might call, call the center of who we are, that we seek to protect our inner selves. We focus on like that, the man at the well, uh, the, the, at, the, at the pool, we focus on the things outside, just altering those behaviors and, and trying to resolve problems. If I only had somebody to help me, if only those people would just get out of my way, if only everybody else would stop thinking of themselves, if only I had a place right down at the edge of the pool, if only I wasn't asleep the last time, if only, if only. And eventually we come exhausted and frustrated because the answer isn't out there. The answer's in here. Genuine change begins in us. When we're Jesus followers, and we become exhausted and frustrated, we're tempted to go back to the familiar routines of thinking, I need to get on God's good side. I need to earn his favor. I need to do something to, to make him love me more. We're tempted to stop trying to understand how to progress and grow as his followers. We're tempted to start stop trying to figure out the difference between good and best and good and evil. And we start thinking about how can I... The moment we start thinking, how can I get God to do what I want him to do? We have stopped trusting him. We've stopped believing him, and we have stepped into the how can I manipulate God from Just say that to yourself always. How can I manipulate God? If you've ever had a strong-willed child and tried to figure out how can I get my kid to do what I want them to do, Imagine what it's like to try to get the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to do what you want the King of Kings to do. I remember the day my mother said to me, I've given up trying to get you to do what I want you to do. Now, I was by then an adult. Young, 19, in college. But I was thankful. I almost said, well, it's about time. <laughs> but my dad was there. Some things. I look dumb, but I'm not real dumb. Um, when we get frustrated and we choose, and we, get, and, and, and we choose arrested development, we, we, we get frustrated because we find out we can't manipulate God. And we choose arrested development. We, we just get stuck going, I can't make this work. 
And we just get stop. We need to realize that we can move forward. But we're going to need God's help. Now, I'm not telling you that to make you think that you can help your, manipulate your kids or get your kids to do what you want them to do because you can't. My mom was absolutely right. But we can, with God's help, learn to grow in love, His love. We can learn to discern between the things that look good but actually lead to death and are really good and lead to better life. We can receive God's revelation of righteousness, of what it means to love like Jesus. We can be transformed, not merely informed. Jesus offers us a life of growth from the inside out. Knowing him transforms our values, our beliefs, our characters, all these things that live inside us. As we experience his unconditional love, as we allow him to love us, not because we've earned it, but because he just does love us. When we experience his unconditional love, our wounds start to heal. Our temperaments are tamed. Jesus helps us to change, to grow, and progress toward maturity. There is hope. Change and progress are promised. They are not simply possible. They are promised to us. God helps us. Now, without that conviction, we will probably never stop. Uh, without the conviction that we will never stop needing to change and the promise that we can change because God's going to help us, we are going to fall back into that idea that always been this way, I'll never be any different. And it's in those moments when we're tempted to fall back, or we have fallen back, into that idea that I've always been this way, I'm never going to change. Jesus is going to show up to us, and this is the one thing I want you to remember in the Sermon and the Sentence. Jesus asked us, do you want to grow? you respond I want to leave that between you and him today he's asking us do you want to grow each of us needs to decide how we're going to respond.
you get ready to leave, you're ready to go out, I want to encourage you to stay alert, stand firm in your trust in Jesus, show courage, be strong, give it all you've got in this journey of following Jesus, and love everyone you meet without stopping. There's a huge door of opportunity that God has opened for us here in our community and beyond. You are sent to make the most of the opportunity God's given us, and you are not going alone. We're in it together, but beyond that, you're going with Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You are sent 